Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. The motion for tonight is Art Must Be Beautiful. Uh, you may or may not know that this is half of a title by work by Marina Abramovich from 1975, which actually says... Art must be beautiful. Artist must be beautiful as well. In this piece, Marina Abramovich, it's a really haunting, haunting work, a video work, where she combs her hair and she says, art must be beautiful. Artists must be beautiful, and more and more aggressively. It's a fantastic work. Of course, art must be beautiful raises a lot of questions. Can aesthetic standards of the day dictate the long-term value of art? Are the aesthetic standards ever eternal? And if there's an essential beauty, if so, is that good, etc., etc. We actually have the results for the entry poll. Uh, of the 507, 90 were undecided. You had 136 for saying that, yes, art must be beautiful. But you had 281 for saying no to that motion. <coughs> we have four eminent... Uh, panelists to battle this question out. Art must be beautiful. For the motion, we have David LaChapelle. David LaChapelle is, of course, one of the great photographers of our time, and also he knows a lot about beauty, given the incredibly beautiful people he has photographed over the years. Uh, I really look forward to hearing his views on beauty. Uh, For the motion also, we have Simone de Puri, co-founder of uh, Philips de Puri Auction House, and I've been told, I haven't seen this actually, mentor in the hit U.S. reality uh, TV program, Work of Art, the next great artist. Uh, We may hear something about this as well. But of course, Simone has worked with some of the great museums in, in Europe, and then also with auction, with one of the great auction houses and seen so many beautiful things passing through his hands. Against the motion, we have Ming Wong, who's an award-winning multimedia artist from Singapore, who, of course, uh, and I think especially about a work called Life and Death in Venice, uh, which was really about uh, the film and or relating to the film Death in Venice, the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful films in the world. Uh, he has, of course, reflected in many of his works on uh, the issue on, and the question of beauty. 
I also against the motion is Stephen Bailey, author of Women in Design and a former director of uh, the Design Museum, actually the first director and founding director of the Design Museum, and of course a very prolific author and, and, and curator and many other things. Also, he seems forever have to live with the, the title The Second Smartest Man in Britain. The order for the debate is the following. David LaChapelle starts for the motion. He's followed by Ming Wong against the motion. Then um, Simon de Puy is for the motion. And then Stephen Bailey will talk again against the motion. So David, yes. are you ready? <laughs> I guess so. Must art be beautiful? Um, no, but it helps. And I mean that sincerely. To me, beauty, the artwork is, can be a marriage of, of beauty and, and concept. And with, without, um, when, when we create something with, uh, without concept, creation uh, can be just merely decorative. And uh, without, um, without beauty, then we're just, or without creation, then we're, we wind up in the realm of thought. I have a very uh, interesting quote from, <laughs> I seated ugliness on my knee, and almost immediately I grew tired of it. And that's by Salvador Dali. And I find it really, to me, it, it made a lot of sense. When I look at paintings like, like Guernica, for instance, here was uh, the most, one of the most famous political paintings, anti-war paintings, about a specific incident, as we, all, as we all know this painting. And yet, it, it's beautiful. It doesn't turn us away. It doesn't repulse us. If we use aggressiveness, if we use um, violence to talk about violence or hideousness or, or aggression to talk about aggression or, or you know, the tough things going on in the world today, um, without an element of a beauty to it, people just turn away, especially now with the 24-hour news channels, things like this. We, we've all seen so much uh, horror that it's more subversive to use beauty to get people's attention, to draw one in, and then uh, give them some information. I did, a, I did a, a photograph a few years back. I was really appalled at what was going on in Africa with the gold mines and how people were, were investing so much during the crash in gold. And these gold mines were uh, expanding, and the, the cost of inhumanity was... was Unbelievable! It was a giant humanitarian crisis. You know, people are just dying, building these these mines. You can see from outer space. It's also a giant environmental crisis, and I called it the rape of Africa. And I based it on Botticelli's Venus and Mars. And Botticelli was really onto something that is still relevant today. Here's a god of war with all of his spoils of his gold beside him, and these three satyrs. And then there's. Uh, Venus, on the other hand, the goddess of beauty, and they're sort of uh, post-coital. And I, I, I re-envisioned this picture with Naomi Campbell uh, playing sort of mother, you know, playing Africa, as it was done in historical paintings 
Uh, there was sometimes they were used women to represent the continents, and I was really you know wanting to talk about this 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 concept and using uh, this Botticelli as sort of a template and wanting to to modernize it with this photograph and get people's attention and look at it, but I couldn't you know there was a critic in Los Angeles and he was he was very upset and. He said, you know, I'm, I'm very uh, offended by this picture that you could use Naomi Campbell to represent Africa. To, to, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time in Africa, and I've been there, and I know what it's like, and, and how could you uh, use this fashion model? And, well, I had many reasons. Number, you know, in my mind, first of all, when I shot the picture, you know, Botticelli used Simonetta Vespucci, who was a famous beauty in her day um, in, in Italy, an aristocrat, um, and he was in love with her, the legend goes, and... That was who he painted. So I, I picked a, a famous beauty of our day, Naomi, to represent Africa. And I said to him, you know, would you look at this picture longer if she had scars on her and flies and uh, you know, a distended belly? If, if this woman was, you know... Uh, I think that's the job of the photojournalist. What I was trying to do is draw people into this photograph and then from, from there tell them something. And I think using beauty as a tool is... Is, is more subversive, it's, it's more difficult to do that, and it, it is more challenging. And we do live in a, in a, in a very, a world full of horrors, and, and now everyone can videotape them. So when there's a tsunami, we're seeing it, you know, 500 different videotapes of it because everyone now has a, a phone with a camera on it. So we're being inundated with Im- images of horror, and if we want to talk about the horrors of the world, or, or, or the tragedies of the world, or, or anything of, 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 of this kind of deep nature, we must employ beauty to, to capture one's attention because people will just turn away. And, and they'll grow, they grow tired of it because we're weary of it already. Um, so I believe that beauty is a tool. And married with concept, um, we can create a, a piece of art that, that will last through the ages and, and stay with us. How much more time do I have? <laughs> <laughs> you have four minutes and okay. 21 four seconds. Minutes. 20 now. <laughs> if I could turn back time. <laughs> um, and, sorry. Um, <laughs> I also think you can look at the example of Jericho and the Raft of Medusa. Um, there was a specific incident. We, we all know this painting, and the incident was horrific. And yet this, this painting caused sort of a scandal at the time, too, because he has almost aestheticized uh, a tragic event, and people were kind of upset about that, that he had used uh, these sort of figures in this uh, sort of Renaissance poses and people were offended but they were also it brought very much attention uh i'll tell them i'm talking um through three minutes left uh it brought a lot of attention to this very very important event and without those aesthetics that painting would have been forgotten today and yet we're still reminded of this event by the painting hanging at the louvre because of its beauty and its magnitude um yes beauty is a weapon um, and if used properly, you can you can really lure people in, and 
and once you have their attention, you can, you can tell them something. And there's something about a, a human beings that we are drawn to beauty, and there's no denying that. We all know ugly when we hear it. When someone's singing off-key, uh, John Lennon song, we cringe, right? But that's an, a kind of a universal ugliness. But in the visual arts, it's much more subtle. But we all know that why are our film stars beautiful throughout the ages since there's been cinema with uh, Garbo, Dietrich, up to you know, Angelina Jolie today because we like looking at beautiful examples of, our, of ourselves, of, our, of other human beings. Something about that pleases us. So we can't deny the fact that a blue sky and, and, and green trees gives us a sense of beauty or wonderment or even the sublime. Um, and I think that's part of being human. So to, to deny that, I think, is to deny part of um, what makes us human. That beauty is something that we are drawn to, and as artists, we can use it to, uh, to get a message across. Thank you. Thank you. you. I'm trying, trying to find a better noise. <laughs> Thank you. We have, of course, we're presenting the artists first. And uh, speaking against the motion, art should be beautiful, the most beautiful artist, Ming Wong, please. Good evening, Hong Kong. Can you hear me? Okay. Now, as Lars has described, the motion of today's debate is taken from a title of a performance art piece by, uh, by Marina Abramovich from 1975. The full title is Art Must Be Beautiful, Artists must be beautiful. Now, I want to share with you what a friend told me. He's an expatriate who came here to live and work in Hong Kong. He said, Hong Kong is totally captivating. She is like a woman in an expensive fur coat, but underneath she wears dirty knickers. <laughs> so, today I will try and show you how that woman is a work of art, not because of her beautiful, expensive uh, coat, but the truth <laughs> that lies down below. <laughs> I believe, as an artist, I, I think art's fundamental purpose is to offer new ways of looking at the world, to give us fresh perspectives on what is happening around us. I have nothing against beauty. In fact, I use beauty in my work. There is a lot of beauty in my work. But it cannot stop there. It cannot stop at beauty. It's not good enough to give 
us what we already know and what we already love for something to be deemed as art. It has to go beyond surface decoration. It has to go beyond distraction. And it has to go beyond drag. (laughs) It has to go beyond fetishism and commodification. Art has to go beyond beauty. And for me, art is life. Life is art. And this is why I'm in this get-up today, here tonight, for the debate. But I would like to come back to Marina Abramovich's seminal work from 1975, Art Must Be Beautiful, Artists Must Be Beautiful. In that video, as Lars has described, she combs her hair with one comb in one hand, and she brushes her hair with a brush with the other hand over and over again, and she keeps repeating, Art Must Be Beautiful, Artists must be beautiful. And she keeps doing it until she destroys her hair and face. For me, the most interesting part of the video, because that is what we have left of that performance from 1975, is when she is scratching her face with a comb and brush such that she pulls her eyes. And she, to me, she becomes... Suddenly, like a, she has slitty eyes, and she's become like a, an inscrutable oriental. <laughs> and at once, dangerous, ugly, or beautiful, or treacherous. She, and at that point, there are, uh, it reminds me of dr- the dragon lady, of Anna Mae Wong, and of Susie Wong, and off Ming Wong. <laughs> that, art, that piece of artwork, to me, is like a mirror. It holds up. What does it hold up to me? This is when I get confused. What does it hold up? And it, is it to me, or which part of me? And that's when, that's when it works. For me, that is when it becomes a very good piece of art. Um, and of course, when you watch this video and when you see her, she looks, she looks a bit like Maria Callas. Mar- uh, Marina is a very, very beautiful woman. But what you might not see in a video is the fact that she did this in 1975 uh, before an audience of 300 people in Copenhagen. And she was naked. And she bared everything for the audience. Now, I'm, I'm, going to quote, uh, I'm going to quote Marina, who talked about this piece of work of hers. The piece, Art Must Be Beautiful, Artist Must Be Beautiful, is really about this image of art that should be beautiful. The idea that the painting should fit the colors of the carpet in the living room, which I think was so wrong, because in my point of view, the art has to be disturbing. Art have to be a prediction of the future. Art have to ask questions. Art have to be so many things, but beautiful or not beautiful, it is not important. Have to be true, unquote. So what is, what is true? What is true? I'm an artist, and I don't usually do public speaking, and, and, and I usually make art to express myself. 
So for me, this debate and my presence here is like a work of art. It's like a performance. And I'm trying to find out what the truth is. Do you want to know what the truth is? Okay. It's your turn. <laughs> well, <laughs> let me all put you at ease immediately. I will, <laughs> I will not be trying to emulate our fantastic uh, Ming Wong. But I do agree with my opponent on the other side of this debate that art is life, life is art, and I happen to think that despite everything, life is beautiful, therefore art is beautiful. Art must be beautiful, and I know that we are the underdogs here tonight, David Lachapelle and myself. I have made the, the calculation here. We have, as we've heard, 90 undecided people here tonight, and even if those 90 are, of course, going to swing to David's and my side of the argument, we still will only get to 226 uh, uh, people in favor of Art is Beautiful. So uh, we will have to really go quite a long way to sway you onto the other side. Now... You're going to have to um, take it off. And... Yes. <laughs> Now, you know, I am Swiss, and uh, we don't like taking sides in a debate. We like to be... Uh, <laughs> we like to be neutral. So uh, when Amélie and Jana asked me, uh, would I uh, consider participating in this debate, I said, yes, I want to be the moderator. And, <laughs> and so... They answered, no, 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 that can't be the case because we have Lars Nitve, and Lars Nitve has to be the moderator. And I must say, I fully agree with them. We could not have a better moderator than Lars Nitve. So this being said, I then said, well, um, you decide on which side of the argument you want to put me. And so the answer came very clearly. You have to be on the artist's beautiful side. And then I started thinking... Uh, I think what we all have in common in this room, otherwise we wouldn't be here in the first place, is that we all love art. I mean, we at least agree on that point. Uh, we all have a passion for art. That's the engine in our lives. It certainly is the engine in my life. I do what I do uh, purely because I'm obsessed with art. And I always say that if you love candies, uh, no better place to work than in a candy store. And uh, so... 
Uh, when I think about all the art that I love and that excites me, uh, at the end of the day, uh, you know, it can either be stirring uh, when I look at a piece of art, it can be sensual, it can be pretty, it can be disturbing, it can be challenging, it can be stunning, it can be interrogating, it can be humorous, it can be sad, it can be poetic, it can be romantic, it can be cold. But all the artworks that... I either love or uh, madly want to possess or madly wish I could at least uh, have them uh, be under my gavel uh, are works that I love. And uh, at the end of the day, that's the common denominator between all those works. And therefore, uh, and now uh, all of these works, I love them, and all of these works, I do find them beautiful. They could not be more different one from another, uh, whether you go from a very cold work, a very purely geometric work, right to the other extreme, to a highly expressionist work. Uh, you can find beauty in all of them. You can find beauty in art of any culture, from any origin. And I love going to museums or to collections without knowing anything in advance about what I'm going to see, without being prepared in any way about what I'm going to be seen. And very often, I much prefer to see the work of a contemporary artist first without the artist. I want to see the work. I want the work to speak for itself. And then if I like it, then I will do my homework. Then I will get into it. And then uh, it may elicit the desire to meet the artist who has done the work. But the outset, it's really the artwork that is there. And uh, when we spend our times in museums, uh, we don't have the privilege of having the artist standing next to it. And uh, when I look at all of these works, the one common denominator is they are beautiful because we find beauty in so many different ways of artistic expression. I'm as obsessed about uh, music that I am about art and we all have an instant reaction when we see first a work of art. It's an immediate instant uh, reaction. My approach to art is purely physical, and so uh, you react to a work of art in the same way that you react to a person. Uh, you cannot explain when you meet a person, either you're phenomenally attracted, or you may feel exactly the other way around, or you may feel totally indifferent, because all of us, we have auras, we all have an energy that we exude, all of us have uh, an appeal on some, uh, we, we, uh, on others not at all, and it is that energy that we exude that we find in the artworks themselves. I have so often seen that it's artworks that choose their collectors and not the other way around. I remember a collector who went to the Zurich Museum and he madly, madly fell in love with a uh, painting there. And so he went to the director of the museum and he said, I have to have this painting. I have to acquire it. Please give me the name of the owner of this work. And then the director said, no, I'm very, very sorry. I can't tell you. I'm not allowed. This is confidential. However, if you want to, write a letter and I will send it to the owner of this work. So he did that uh, and gave the letter to the museum director and never, ever got an answer. And uh, so he thought, well, that didn't work. And seven years later, he was in a different city. Suddenly, there was a tremendous thunderstorm that uh, erupted. And he just happened to stand in front of a jeweler. And so in order to come and uh, protect himself from the uh, rain, he walked into the jeweler's store. 
and started to chat to the jeweler. And then the jeweler told him, where do you come from? And he said, I come from Zurich. And uh, then he said, oh, that's interesting. I lent one of my paintings uh, seven years ago to the museum. And in fact, I had this crazy guy who wrote me a letter uh, <laughs> that he wanted to, uh, that he loved my work so much and that he wanted to uh, acquire this work from my collection. And then the guy said, well, that was me. So he was in such a, a shock that he immediately agreed to sell him the work. And so the transaction happened. And so often, uh, you may think I'm completely nutty and you're not wrong, but uh, so often I see that this is the case, that you see that the, the artworks exude energy. Now, uh, when we love somebody, when we, we all think uh, the person we love is the most beautiful person in the world. And we mentioned earlier the, the young boy in the death in Venice, the most beautiful boy in the world. Uh, uh, my great hero in life is Prince, the musician, the genius from Minneapolis. And uh, his most stunning song uh, ever written, and one of the most beautiful uh, pieces of music ever written, is called You Must Be the Most Beautiful Girl in the World. And uh, when you love, you love somebody uh, for their inner beauty just as much as for their exterior beauty. You love the whole thing. And in fact, very often perfection can be very boring, can be off-putting. It has happened to all of us of meeting wonderfully attractive people and then somehow the uh, fascination wears off very, very quickly. It can happen the same thing with art. You may acquire a work of art that has instant appeal and you may see that after uh, three days the most you don't want to live with that artwork any longer. Uh, and the contrary, you may love somebody uh, for their little imperfections, if they have some, it, it, for their little defaults, if they have some. And there is great beauty in those imperfections. There's great beauty in these defaults. And so at the end of the day, uh, if you say, does art have to be stirring? Not necessarily. Does art have to be sensual? It can be, but not necessarily. Does art have to be pretty? It can occasionally be. Does art have to be disturbing? It doesn't have to be, but it can occasionally be. Does art have to be challenging? Yes, sometimes, um, as we've just seen. Uh, does art have to be interrogating? Uh, does art have to be humorous? Yes, it can be sometimes. Does art have to be sad? And yes, sometimes uh, uh, the greatest art uh, is sad. Why has no comedy ever won an Oscar? Uh, and my final, final question is, does art have to be beautiful? And the answer is yes! <laughs> Must art be um, beautiful? I mean, this is, of course, a, a question which begs... Uh, it's a deceptively simple question which begs a lot of other ones. I mean, I mean I've never... I mean, I've been studying and passionate about art forever, and I've never yet found um, a sensible, sensible definition of what it is. I like uh, Ernst Gombrich's idea. There's no such thing as art. They're just artists. You know, they're, they're just these people who do, who, who do things compulsively, make things. But there are some things which I think are absolutely certain um, about art. And art must be aesthetic. I mean, it must have visual attributes. It must be... A 
display of compelling visual um, intelligence. Artists must be people who can speak a visual language, who know how to do things with uh, you know, form, line, color, shape, tone, uh, contrast. Artists must be able to use this language to remember things they've seen and to describe and to speculate um, about the future. Um, and as uh, Simone de Puri said, there's a vast range of things artists must do, seduce, persuade, annoy, discourage, titillate, um, artists should certainly understand tradition, but they, they shouldn't be slaves to it. Artists should try to be original, but then you must always remember that mere novelty alone is never a guarantee of, of, of excellence. There's a, you know, artists must, should have a whole range of everything from comic to tragic. But whether art must be beautiful, I'm actually very, very, very uncertain. In fact, while I describe myself as an aesthete, I mean, I, you know, I'm on a sort of you know, mad mission to beautify the world, I sort of think, the more I think about it, I think the um, uh, beauty is a collective um, delusion. You know, in many senses, the pursuit of beauty can be rather, rather, um, rather sinister. And the place of beauty in art is, is, is you know, by no means actually um, clear to me. I mean, Voltaire once said it's the purpose of art to improve on nature. Now, that's a very, very, very interesting idea because the idea of improvement is readily, perhaps too readily, uh, construed as meaning make it more beautiful. And this is what, you know, my own subject is modern industrial design. And this is certainly what a lot of the great industrial designers wanted to do. The whole story of 20th century design is about how to aestheticize the everyday things, how to democratize beauty. This is all, this is all terribly exciting. The great Raymond Lowy, the person who probably invented the consultant design um, um, profession when he opened his office in New York in 1927, he wrote a great book, I mean, the French title of which is uh, Le, Le Laideur Souvent de Mal, I mean, ugliness sells badly, and that might actually be, in the contemporary world, one of the best definitions of beauty. If it sells well, it's, you know, it, it, it's beautiful. If it doesn't, it's not. But what exactly, you know, beauty, it's, the point about beauty is as soon as you try to understand it, it disappears. It's like trying to embrace smoke. I think it's actually much more interesting to try to understand ugliness. I mean, ugliness, I think, is much, much more interesting than beauty. And, and ugliness has actually uh, preoccupied a lot of very great artists. Besides, I mean, David LaChapelle men mentioned Jericho's uh, Raft of the Medusa, but there are countless other examples. Leonardo da Vinci, he was, I mean, for much of, uh, for the most of the, uh, the last few centuries, Leonardo was much better known for his drawings of grotesques and disfigurements uh, than he was for his beautiful paintings. But Leonardo himself said, I need to be disgusted by things in order to, in order to, in, in order to progress. It's easy to think of other examples. Matthias Grunewald, the author of the Isenheim Multipiece, painted skin diseases and people in terrible distress. Goya was all about violence and depravity. André Breton, the founder of the Surrealist, said beauty, beauty must be convulsive or, or, or not at all. And Andy Warhol might have painted a lot of beautiful people, but he also liked painting guns and car crashes and electric chairs. You see, I think what I'm trying to say is beauty, I think, can only really be understood um, in, the con in the context of, of ugliness. Now, last, just before, mentioned Edmund Burke and his very, very important book on, on the, the treatise on the sublime and the beautiful. Interestingly, Burke hadn't seen much art. Burke was an Irish, uh, an Irish farmer, landowner, basically. He, he didn't grow up with paintings, but he came up with this theory about the beautiful and the sublime. Beautiful things are soft and round and warm and cuddly, like a kitten, for instance, and the sublime is uh, dark mountains, ravines, ugly, no uh, ter terrifying noises. 
is. And what Burke is actually saying in his theory of the beauty and the, and the, and the beautiful and the sublime, it's not that the beautiful and ugly things are actually polar opposites or different. They're actually all part of the same um, aesthetic experience. Now, it's interesting uh, where we get in English the word ugly, and ugly is a preoccupation of mine. It comes from the Old Norse, or as it's last here, we will say the Old Swedish, the Old Swedish word ugger, or the Old Norse word ugger, which means aggressive, which is where we get the English expression, an ugly customer. An ugly customer is an aggressive person. Um, but anyway, when we talk about, you know, the thing is that, that, that we know what ugliness is. It's much, much easier to recognize. But when we talk about beauty, which we're told art, art must be, there's absolutely, uh, there's no sensible um, definition of it. All it is, it's all about taste. It's, we're talking about the shared and agreed attributes of certain cliques and tribes at any, at any given time. There's only one definition of beauty which I know is acceptable. It's, it, it's, it doesn't, alas, belong to me. It belongs to an American academic called Elaine Scarry, who's professor of English at, um, at, um, at Harvard. And she said something is beautiful if we want to reproduce it. And it's as simple as that. And that applies to people and sex and love and, and art. If you want, if art is great if you want to. That is the only a definition of beauty um, I know. But ugliness, now that's something altogether you know, you know, more interesting and, uh, and definable. Remember, Coolhaas, the architect, uh, said, you know, you know, actually, beauty, let's face it, beauty, he said, is really seriously boring to talk about. It, things get much, much more interesting when you discuss um, ugliness. I mean, Salvador Dali thought sex, uh, you know, must, must, must be um, ugly. Baudelaire, just to give you one example, found the idea of bad taste and bad and challenging art utterly, utterly um, intoxicating because bad art, ugly art, uh, gave you a sense of the unknown, whereas beauty is almost always, you know, you know, predictably dull. You never forget the, the influence of taste on all of this. I think is overwhelming. Never forget how all our all our ideas about art are motivated by taste and, and subject to, subject to change. There is no such thing as a great as an old old European master who's had a continuously high reputation. I mean, the reputations always change. Great works of art and architecture. Uh, you know, the, the Eiffel Tower, for instance. I mean, Baudelaire's contemporaries thought the Eiffel Tower well, you know, it was hideously ugly. It was called by Demont called it um, a hateful column of bolted tin, useless and monstrous and ugly. Of course, we think very differently now. Take Brian Eno, the, the music producer and, 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 and performer. He had something wonderful to say about uh, in the place of beauty um, in contemporary art. Brian Eno said, the big challenge for artists today is to produce work that's sufficiently ugly that it can't possibly be appropriated for advertising. Now, there's something... <laughs> now, there strikes me as something really seriously interesting. Beauty is... A lovely idea, and I am all for it. I mean, I'm in heavens above, I'm not against beauty, but it's a con- it's a convention, and um, you know, conventions I think should be uh, you know, challenged, um, not necessarily accepted. And I think the terrible paradoxical truth, and I speak as an aesthete, and but I'm speaking against the motion because I'm an aesthete. The truth is that if everything, and this is my fundamental point, if everything was beautiful, we would live in a world of undifferentiated visual tedium. Um, if everything were beautiful, nothing would be beautiful. There's no requirement for art to continuously explore beauty, though it might. You know, beauty is, a, you know, beauty is an option. But art should also explore other extremes. You know, beauty is, you know, beauty is an option, I think, not an absolute. If all art were required to be beautiful, all art would be boring. So I'm against the motion, and I don't think art, doesn't need, art does not need to be beautiful. Anyway, thank you.
So I open now the floor. There are uh, members of the staff, the fantastic staff here, with mics who are prepared to run around and pick up your voices. Hello. Um, could Simone and uh, uh, Mr. Le Chapelle give their definitions of beauty? Because I don't think that came over quite. Simone, David. There's the, you know, the when I got the uh, invitation to do this panel, there's the age-old sort of cliche or quote, um, beauty is an eye, eye of the beholder, which is no real debate that, that really kind of negates the necessity to have a debate because um, we all know that to be true. Beauty comes, and I think Simone gave a long list of uh, things that beauty can be. It can be all things and all different voices. I think where beauty comes from is in the intention of an artist. And it may take society even time to come around to understanding that or, or to because the artist may be way ahead of of, of society in his uh, definition or expression of beauty, and so what he makes may be considered ugly um, because of its hasn't been seen because it's something that hasn't we're not used to seeing or not used to being called art, which has happened many times. Um, history, you know, you bring to mind Jackson Pollock and things like that. Um, and then people come around to it, and they see the, the lyricism in it, and they see the heart and, and, and the soul in it, and the beauty in it. But I think it, I think beauty comes from intention of the artist. And with, if an artist has, has has an intention to create um, something of beauty, it, it will come through, and it will come through, and, and come through in many, many different ways. There's, uh, and, and again, there's that list, that Simone, the, the sadness. Um, the ironic, the, the, the funny, the, there's beauty in levity, there's beauty in, in, in so many things. People find, find uh, beauty in, in, in fighting and boxing. And, um, so, it, it, of course, it's in the eye of the beholder. But I think in, when it comes to an artist, when it comes to artwork, it's in the intention, um, what goes into the creation of something, um, where that, that's where beauty is born, is the intention of the artist. Stephen Bailey was poking me here. He, uh, he has no, something on his no, mind. I just wanted to make it a little... I, don't, I absolutely don't want to turn this into an, an historic seminar, but it's worth making the point that the idea of beauty and ugliness only enters Europe... The two things as opposites only enters European thought uh, in the industrial era. It doesn't exist before. The, I mean, we, people only began to debate about whether things were beautiful or ugly when mass production began and when so industrially produced goods were available and there was a different... And, Back to my question about taste, when taste was available. When, when, when beauty and ugliness only became subject to debate when you could reproduce works of art. It's an indu- these are industrial ideas. I mean, the ideas about beauty and ugliness do not, uh, do not, are not deeply rooted in, um, right. um, in European art. And no, there is a connection, so I wouldn't go on and on. But that was point number one. Point number two <laughs> is, about, is about the thing is about the, the whole business about beauty in the eye of the beholder is actually probably not true. There's a new discipline called neuroaesthetics, which brings together magnetic resonance imaging with art criticism, and and the whole proposition of the neuroaestheticians is that there are very precise neural correlates of beauty, that certain proportions, Mm -hmm. certain shapes, 
certain color patterns are actually universally pleasing across all cultures. They're in the... Uh, and that, anyway, that's, that's an interesting point. Beauty is probably not in the eye of the beholder. A lot of our responses are hardwired. But it still doesn't mean we're wrong because it's still, you know, we, we, it's still what we, when we're talking here about beauty, we're talking about an accepted convention. And I don't think great art should necessarily be about accepted conventions. But it's also not taste either. I mean, Truman Capote said, good taste is the death of art. And if something is merely taste, it's, it, it'll just fall away as a fad of the day. I think beauty transcends time. My question is to David LaChapelle. Um, you said you used Naomi to re- represent Africa because you said people would turn away from scars. But then you said to deny beauty is to deny what is human. And by using Naomi Campbell, who, is, who doesn't really accurately represent the scars and the ugliness of Africa, aren't you denying what is reality? Aren't you denying what is really human? And no, I, I, I don't think so. I was, is, was Botticelli denying what is real and human by using uh, Simonetta Vespucci to represent Venus, the goddess of beauty? I was representing the goddess of beauty, but I was also using her to represent in this picture the rape of Africa. And in order to get, get people's attention to look at the picture, if I had used, a, you know, I'm not, I'm not a photojournalist, that's, that's another role a very important role in, in photography, and that's not my role. But to get people's attention, to get people to look at a picture long enough, um, I wanted to attract them. My point simply was, if I'd used, you know, this critic was saying, how dare I use, you know, Naomi Campbell to represent Africa? I said, well, if I used, you know, a model with a descended belly and scars, would you look at it longer? And he said, I see your point. I don't think you would look at the picture longer. I think you'd turn away. And I want to get people to, to stop to, long enough to, to tell them, to, to say what I, what I, I wanted to, to convey in the, photo, in, in, in the picture. Answered your Any question. further questions? Any more? Yes. There's <laughs> one over here. Considering the artist uh, Francis Bacon, who... Uh, who uh, did a lot of paintings based on the uh, inherent uh, disgustingness of the human body, grotesque paintings. Could you say that those are more beautiful paintings as much as uh, perhaps thoughtful paintings? Um, (laughs) Yeah, I I think we've all failed, really, to distinguish between whether we're talking about beautiful you know, you know, Francis Bacon, I, mean, I think Simon was talking about a, a work of art can be beautiful irrespective of its content. content. Now, that's a very interesting, that, that, that's prob- you know, probably another debate. You know, one can take great satisfaction and delight from, you know, from, from the sheer technical skill, the virtuosity of Goya, even if he is what, you know, painting people being shot or, you know, or, or, or beheaded. Um, so that's, that's one thing. The same, the same with Francis, you know, Francis Bacon. Yeah, the same as I said before with Leonardo. I mean, Leonardo set out with the intention of getting disgusted by, you know, by, you know, by the horrors, you know, by the horrors of nature, and back to you know, back to Darwin. Darwin and beauty is, a, it's, I mean, Darwin's as unreliable as opinion polls. I mean, the, Darwin's theory of evolution doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't doesn't allow for many things. It certainly doesn't really um, doesn't um, doesn't really explain um, human beauty, whatever that might be. I mean, Francis Bacon started off as a furniture designer, and his paintings were so beautifully composed and designed that there's no denying the beauty in them. Um, 
even though the the content that was was challenging, there was a an incredible, undeniable beauty in them, and that's why they've that's why they've lasted. That's why they're here. That's why we're talking about them. My question is for Mr. Le, Mr. La Chapelle. It concerns me somewhat that by using uh, a conventional symbol of beauty to help attract people to your mm-hmm. story that is told by the rest or the remainder of uh, your piece of work, that you are establishing and perhaps reinforcing a sense of conventionality or norms. In fact, using an archetypal beauty to, mm-hmm. to, to begin your story. Mm-hmm. Let me challenge that with another example. If I were to cast an image of a uh, Kandinsky or a Mondrian on the wall... Some, including the aesthete, might see a very attractive, even beautiful pattern of geometric shapes. If, however, I was now to cast a picture of a swastika on the wall, would you see the same beauty there? Well, I mean, the question you've asked is one of the fundamental questions in aesthetics. That's to say, I mean, are, do our responses come um, from the direct appreciation of a, of a, of a, of, you know, of a, of a sign, an image, or do, do they come by associations? Um, and the answer is, you know, yeah. I mean, aesthetic response is based on both, you know, uh, both, uh, yeah, di- direct and associational um, input. Which is what I again, which is what I mean by when I'm talking about taste, really. Yes. It's it's all it's all that sort of meta, you know. The taste is all the metaphysical and the metaphorical values which any you know which any um, image can have. I mean, I mean after all, the swastika. I mean, the swastika was after all I mean, the Hindu sign for good luck. Yes. So it's only latterly become associated with something um, less attractive. David. Um, actually, using Naomi Campbell was was very non-conventional for an art piece. People were offended. I knew it when I made it. It was going to be very um, challenging uh, for people in the art world to see. Not, you know, when you see an art photograph, a lot of times it looks like art photograph because there's no makeup. There's not, you know, it's a, if it's figurative, it tends to look like an art picture. So I was actually being very challenging and non-conventional by using Naomi Campbell in a photograph that was made specifically for a gallery exhibition and not for a magazine. Taking her out of the context of that and putting her into the gallery uh, realm or the, or the contemporary art realm really pushed people's buttons and, and really set people off. They were very offended that this isn't art, that's a fashion model. You know? So um, I, I challenge your challenge. Lady in the beautiful... Uh, ivory blouse. Um, my question is for Simone. Simone, are you arguing that if it's not beautiful, it's not art? Or are you arguing if it's art, there's beauty in it? Uh, I'm arguing if there's art, there's beauty in it. And um, as I said, we mentioned Francis Bacon, who happens to be another one of my all-time uh, favorite artists. So, uh, you know, there is beauty in, in great art. And um, that's the answer, my answer. Thank you all. This part of the session is uh, sadly over. Now to summing up. Stephen. Okay, well, um, you know, much as I admire... um Simon, David, and, um, and actually agree with a great deal of what they said. But both of what they've said tonight demonstrates our 
our point that um, there's actually no real working definition of, you know, of, um, of what is beauty. It is, as I said, beauty is a sort of collective delusion which at any moment in history is, is influenced by our, our taste. As I said, there are no such things as constants in the history um, of art. I'm actually pretty convinced that ugliness is actually more interesting than beauty. Too much, having too much beauty uh, you know, would be boring. And so the question therefore remains, and I think this is a fascinating, to me the most fascinating thing of all, if you accept that too much beauty is boring, then how much ugliness do you actually want? Do we need to, you know, do we need to allow for that? All I'm, my fundamental belief as an aesthete is that you know, what we talk about with art, what we value in art is visual, visual quality, the ability to express ideas in visual language. I mean, great art must be startling. It must be wonderful. And it cannot very often be beautiful. However, you know, however beauty is... Um, is um, is defined, but beauty, my fundamental point, our fundamental point, is that beauty is just one of several options available to, um, um, to artists. I think the best th- observation I know about uh, you know, beauty versus ugliness belongs to Serge Gainsbourg, that fabulous old mm. grizzled French chanteur who once said, first of all, he used to go to parties with the intention of picking up the most ugly woman he could find, but then he said, he said, he had a fabulous observation, he said, ugliness is superior to beauty because it lasts longer. Um. (laughs) and we want art to last a long time so brilliant thank you very much Uh, Simon Uh, Stephen uh, thank you because you just mentioned another one of my (laughs) ultimate uh, heroes I worship uh, Serge Gainsbourg Uh, now uh, I think what uh, Ming Wong said is really it. Uh, Art is life. Life is art. And um, Ming Wong also said that she views everything we do as a work of art. And Ming Wong, you've beautifully demonstrated this. Everything we do is a work of art. And let's face it, we are all privileged to be here. Life is beautiful. Art is beautiful. And I'm fully expecting you to second the motion that David and I are (laughs) defending here vigorously. Ming Wong. Yes, it's been a very interesting discussion and good questions from the audience, and it got me thinking uh, about what beauty is, because we haven't really addressed that. It's another debate altogether. But there is that scientific uh, approach to what beauty is that's linked to evolution. There is that. But coupled with that is also uh, a, cul- a cultured form of appreciation, and that's where I'm interested in, because... For example, I grew up, I, I studied traditional Chinese art and at the same time studied Western art history. And you have all these different um, opinions which are in conflict with each other and things which do not exist in, 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 the, other, in the other pond. Um, so I've grown up to have a, have a very big suspicion of beauty. And that's my job, that I have to question what is beauty? And uh, when I make my work, it's, it's, it's precisely that. When I don't know whether Marina Abramovich's work is beautiful or whether it's dangerous, whether it's colonialist or whether it's just my own sensitivity, I don't know. But that confusion is what I thrive for in looking at art, in appreciating art, and in, in what I do. So, yeah. There you go. Yeah, thank you.
And finally, David, the word is your. So, <clears throat> thank you. Someone mentioned Kandinsky, and there's a beautiful quote. Um, that is beautiful, which is produced by the inner need which springs from the soul. That is beautiful, which is produced by the inner need which springs from the soul. I think that um, artists and all the artists that we've talked about tonight and all of my favorite artists, they seem to be tapped into a collective consciousness, maybe more so than, than other mortals. But they've created work that inspires and, and created a, something that's undefinable and that which we can't define, which is beauty. It's, it, it is undefinable, and it comes in as many varieties and shapes and, and, and ideas as, as life does. But artists um, can lead us into a greater understanding of, our, of life. And life, like Simone said, can be beautiful. And I think, I think that that is the gift that art gives us. It gives us these, the chance for definition of what is beautiful and, and the choice, um, the personal choice to, to make our own conclusion of what is beautiful. Um, that's all. Thank you. Thank you very much. I mean, it's been a lot of laughs, a lot of applauses, and actually, when you think about it, the theme that has reoccurred has actually been pretty serious, and it's quite profound issues that we've been discussing. And I think this is because we're talking about art, and because we're talking about life, and the possibility that they are sort of two sides of the same thing, just a mirror of some sort. Um, thank you so much, uh, the panelists. I think you've been fantastic. Stephen, Simon, Ming Wong, David. Um, you haven't been such a bad audience yourself. You've been very lively, and uh, that's really wonderful. And uh, you've cast your votes as well. Um, you remember how you voted before the debate. There were 90 undecided which was 18% of the total vote. Uh, there were 136 persons who voted for the motion. Art must be beautiful. That's 27%. And against the motion, we had 200 and, let me see so I read, 281, which was 55% of the total vote at the time. Now, the question is, what do you think? Maybe... Was it possible to do that miracle and get beyond and convert more than the 90 undecided? Is there, has there been any triangulation going on here? I actually, I think the, the, in the debate, you know about triangulation in, 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 in voting where you steal some of the best ideas from the opponent to make them into your own. I think some of that actually happened in this debate also. <laughs> so, uh, and that can lead to unpredicted results when there is a vote, at least in an election. Uh, so post-vote, vote. what is? Well, there is a, actually, we lost a zero in the undecided. There are only nine of the 90 left. 
2%, that is. Uh, then what happened with the for and the against? Well, for, actually, it has gone up. So, I mean, some success, but not complete success. There are nine left you, know, you could have converted, I guess. 175 for, which is 35% of the total vote. And against, we have 318 votes, which is 63% of the total vote. So, against, art must not be beautiful. That's decided. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligent Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.